The Start On Demand. On demand. As protests and unrest continues across North America in the wake of George Floyd's death, we're asking the question today, how can we be an ally? We'll speak to our psychologist friend, Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman, as well as Susie Urjavec-Parker from Sparker Strategy Group. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers have partnered with local loungewear company Zuike, with whom we've spoken before on this program, for a new jacket that looks really sweet. And Zuike is going to tell us about their latest entry into their Black History collection. And it got up to 31.4 degrees in Winnipeg on Monday, prompting some to complain that's too hot. So today we're asking the question, how hot is too hot? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, who is back on Wednesday. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and this is the Tuesday, June 2nd podcast for The Start. Mackling and McGarry, McNabb is back tomorrow. And at 6.45, we want to ask you the question. Well, we'll ask you the question right now. We'll discuss it at 6.45. How hot is too hot? Is there such a thing, Greg? I think there is. For a lot of us, we crave the sunshine. We crave the summer heat. And then it comes along. It's like, oh, no, well, not that hot. I don't want it to be that warm. Yesterday might have been one of those days. Even my dog didn't like the heat. He loves to be outside. And he loves to walk. But uh, even on his long walk yesterday, he gets two or three walks a day. Jackie takes him on a long walk in the evening. And he plunked down about three quarters through his route and said, that's enough for me, man. So, uh, yeah, if it's uh, too hot for the dogs, uh, then uh, I think there's a genuine question here. Was it too hot yesterday for some of us human beings? Yeah, I uh, like I, when I was playing golf on Saturday in LaSalle, it was maybe 20 degrees. And I thought this is perfect because it wasn't it wasn't windy. It was just it was sunny. It was beautiful. But I find and I used to think my dad was crazy when I was younger because he loves the heat. He likes it hot. He likes it. Uh, I think he likes it humid. And uh, one of our colleagues too, Jeff Courier, who is uh, from Southern Ontario, he likes it hot and humid. Uh, and I used to think those guys were nuts, but I now find as I'm getting older, the it, the hotter, kind of the better. Uh, and depending on the situation, of course. Like if I'm on, a, you know, if I I remember having to get on a bus wearing a shirt and tie in the middle of the afternoon on my way to a job interview and thinking this is terrible because I'm sweating. <laughs> so in sure. that circumstance, no. But if you're in a position where you can just go sit outside like I did yesterday, I sat in my balcony for three hours while I was do, checking emails and trying to do stuff for the show. I thought, I'm pretty happy with this office situation right now. No, I hear you loud and clear. And I've began to, or begun to, <laughs> like the heat a lot more the older that I get. Uh, but I, I think I inherited sort of a disdain for the heat from my mom. My mom was a 19, 20, 21 degrees was her sweet spot. And I think I, I just sort of thought, well, yeah, that that's the perfect temperature. And then uh, when you go to Arizona 
or uh, into southeastern United States and you experience 100 degrees, you know there is a difference between a dry heat and that humid heat. Uh, in Montreal and New York, it's completely different as well than it is, say, in Vancouver or Winnipeg when it's really hot. So, um, yeah, I, I like hot and dry. So um, I, I'm not like my mom at all. She'd be very, very disappointed in me. Hey, by the way, just uh, getting some text messages I see over the last couple of hours that uh, we sound like chipmunks on Radio Player. Oh, so if no. you're listening on Radio Player and that is continue, uh, still a problem, let us know and we'll see if we can figure that out. Don says, by the way, I had my dogs at the dog park yesterday and the lab spotted and chased a rabbit. It was so hot. <laughs> they were both walking. So let us know what you think. How hot is too hot? And we'll have that discussion at 645. I'm just looking at, by the way, the forecast for San Diego where your friend Scott, our friend Scott Mortland lives. Uh, yes. Isn't San Diego go the place that's referred to as like that has the most perfect weather year round yeah they say that san diego in north america has the most perfect climate of anywhere else and the forecast for today is 24 and i'm just looking at the forecast for the next week in a bit and it's between 25 21 and 25 across the board with lows in the 17 to 18 range so that's pretty consistent if that was the the consistent temperature through the summer here i would be completely fine with that uh because that is gorgeous so we'll have that conversation coming up at 6 45 also we have lots to discuss greg as protests continue for the six day protesters gathered in cities across the u.s to demonstrate against racism and the death of george floyd u.s president donald trump has threatened to deploy the american military against americans who are protesting If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. All sorts of reactions to this uh, declaration, Brett, from President Trump. We will go to Washington at 7.07 to get the latest on this. The events which took place on either side of the president's pronouncement last evening were as provocative as the announcement itself. Officers firing tear gas at peaceful protesters to clear a safe path for the president, to walk to and take pictures in front of fire-damaged St. John's Episcopal Church, Bishop Marion Edgar Buddy outraged. The president just used a Bible, the most sacred text of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and one of the churches of my diocese, without permission. Bishop Edgar on CNN. Andy Field, ABC News. So, Brett, I don't know if you saw any of this or not, but as cable news networks were preparing to cover the Rose Garden announcement in split screen, you could see police moving protesters uh, out of the the park, which separates, I think it's called Lafayette Park, which separates the White House from St. John's Church. And it, it, it was unbelievable, more than 30 minutes prior to the start of the Washington, D.C. curfew. And so as that was happening, the president came out, made his announcement, and in the background, you could actually hear the uh, tear gas and the rubber bullet and everything that was going on in the background. You could actually hear it in the president's microphone as he made this announcement that we just played for you. Split screen images of the police in riot gear and on horseback. And, uh, you know, the the group had been to that point, uh, peaceful 
protesters and the president tells the world that he would send the military to cities which don't first request help from the National Guard. Many calling it, Brett, a true made-for-TV moment. Trump made his announcement, took no questions, then walked across the White House lawn to Pennsylvania Avenue and then created the photo opportunity in front of the church, Bible in hand, a truly remarkable moment in history. That's the brother of George Floyd, who yesterday pleaded for peace while standing at the site of Floyd's death. Terrence Floyd made an emotional plea near the very spot where his brother was pinned to the pavement by an officer who put his knee on the man's neck until he stopped breathing. Terrence urged demonstrators to channel their anger towards constructive change, adding that violence is not going to bring his brother back. Here in Winnipeg, there will be a Black Lives Matter rally this Friday at 6 o'clock outside the legislature. The group holding the rally is calling itself Justice for Black Lives Winnipeg, and the organizer is 20-year-old Jada Hope. She spoke to Richard Cluche and Julie Buckingham on the news yesterday afternoon. Me personally, as a Black woman in Winnipeg, even just advocating for this rally and putting it on, I have been faced with racism and the backlash. I am doing nothing wrong. I am saying nothing wrong. I am being peaceful. But people are still coming at me with racist remarks and comments. So that goes to show you it doesn't matter which way you approach a situation. If people are racist, they're going to be racist. And we need allies to combat that and to stand up for that and tell people when they're wrong. Jada Hope joined Richard and Julie at 4.05 yesterday. You can hear the entire discussion in the audio vault if you go to cjob.com. Now, as we continue to follow the news developing in the United States and rallies held around the world to fight systemic racism towards the black community, we're talking to members here in Winnipeg about their experiences and what can be done moving forward. Global's Malika Kareem has more. Ben Williams was born and raised in New Jersey. He moved to Winnipeg six years ago. The racism in the States is so extreme and it's so intense. And because it's so extreme and intense, my experience with racism as a black man in Canada is a lot, let's just say it's easier to deal with here. However, there are subtleties. There's a lot of tone deafness. Like the use of a certain word and why it invokes pain for certain black Canadians. Noting in Winnipeg, there's a much smaller community than in other major cities like Toronto. Here, you know, there's a little bit of a isolation and the community's way smaller. And so when people have expressed that they've had these experiences, you know, people are like, oh, it's okay. Oh, it's just something else. And it's like, no. You know, you need to understand there is pain that is attached to this. Councillor Marcus Chambers says it's not enough to passively say things have to change, but to actively take up action to stop racism. It is about education. It is about that learning. It is about that piece that we're missing that connects our communities together that we really need to to embrace and and tear down those barriers of, of fear, of, of ignorance, of, of superiority, and work towards a common understanding that we're all in it together. It's called the human race. Malika Kareem, Global News. Also a heads up that if you see on social media today just blank black 
uh, posts with nothing else. That has to do with something called the show must be paused. Uh, the music industry is planning a day of silence today. They're calling it Blackout Tuesday after the death of George Floyd. So in case you're wondering, is there something wrong with this person's feed? No, it's a deliberate mm. post uh, to just be black and silent. <laughs> Mackling and McGarry McNabb back tomorrow. You know, we spend six months of the year lamenting how cold it is, and then it finally gets hot. It gets to 31.4 degrees yesterday. And, uh, and Greg, you say that people are complaining it's too hot. Yep, people are complaining. My kids, they wouldn't go outside yesterday to play basketball in the driveway. Alexander threw the baseball around a little bit. But, yeah, even whiskey. My uh, faithful dog uh, companion, he's uh, just over a year old, and on his long walk last night, he said, this is too long, mummy, and he lay down on the uh, on the path as uh, they were making their way on their walk. So if it's too hot for the dogs, I guess it's reasonable to imagine that it's too hot for people. So we are asking you the question, how hot is too hot? Jeff Forte is here, Jeff Braun is here, Kelly Moore is here, and Jeff Forte, why don't we start with you, buddy? Oh, I didn't, uh, well, it was hot yesterday, but I still went out for an hour-long walk. Uh, I would have went longer, but I had to hydrate myself, and you know what happens when you hydrate yourself, so, uh, yeah, um, too hot, you know, I wouldn't say it was too hot, it was hot. How hot is too hot for you, though? Oh, once it gets to, like, 35, then it's, then then I'm, I'm done. Yeah. And especially with the humid, if it's humid outside, then it's it's unbearable. Uh, but for me, like, comfortable is 25. 25 degrees, it's comfortable for me. Kelly Moore, you spend a lot of time in Mexico. How hot is too hot for you? Uh, it, it, uh, Jeff, uh, just uh, Forche just uh, mentioned uh, the H word. It's all about humidity. Uh, coming from BC, and Greg, you'll know this, uh, it's a very dry heat there. So 35, 36, even 37 degrees with dry heat, it's hot. But when you toss in the humidity here, like when you get to a 40 or more humidex, uh, to me that gets very uncomfortable. But uh, I don't know. I, I found with the, the bit of a breeze that we had yesterday did uh, after I was finished up, uh we did a little bit of garden work. I'm working on some landscaping. So, I don't know, I was probably out in the yard for an hour and a half, two hours, and I found it quite comfortable. Yeah, I didn't mind it yesterday. I, I, I was a little surprised when I went for my walk just before noon. I thought, oh, my God, it's already quite hot out here. But, uh, yeah, and as far as that dry heat goes, I went to Las Vegas last June. It was the first time I'd been to Vegas uh, in the summer and uh, it was hot but it wasn't stifling so yeah. it was just it was a quite kind of a unique experience Jeff Braun how hot is too hot for you you like the tap tap the tepid tap water so <laughs> I'm curious oh, I had to upgrade to some some ice water yesterday to keep cool in the heat <laughs> it depends it always depends what you're doing though you know what I mean like yeah if you're working in your yard or if you're going for a walk and you know you're you can go home or go inside sort of whenever you want to cool off or to have a shower if you get all sweaty, that's fine. The only time it really bothers me is if you have to do something like an outdoor wedding where you have to get dressed up mm-hmm. and then it's 33 degrees and you've got like a hot black suit on and you can't escape to go jump in the shower or something to just wash the sweat off you, that sort of thing. <laughs> but a day like yesterday when we're mostly still just hanging out at home when we're not working, I got no problem with that at all. I went for a nice long walk yesterday too and 
took my cold bottle of water with me. And you, that, you raise a good point there, Jeff, on the wedding, because I remember I had to go to a wedding in Bell River, Ontario, and I think it was actually the hot spot of Canada that day. It was over 35 degrees. The humidity was through the roof, and we're sitting in this Catholic church, and the ceremony was in an hour, and uh, all the, I felt like uh, uh, the full Monty was about to break out because guys throughout the room were loosening <laughs> their ties and taking their ties off, and all, all the women had fans going. A storm blew in, thankfully, and we got a breeze finally coming in through the windows, but that was super hot. And another thing, too, is 30 degrees or 31 degrees isn't all that bad, depending on how used to it you are. Like, I remember one day I played golf on a Sunday, and it was 30 degrees. On the Tuesday prior to that, so just five days earlier, it was four degrees. So the, the jump from four to 30 was just, my body had not adjusted. And I think I almost got heat stroke that day because I just wasn't quite ready for it. Greg, how hot is too hot for you? Well, in this part of the world, I'm with Forche. 35 is sort of maximum for me. That's where I start to slow down. Uh, but the hottest I ever experienced was 103 degrees uh, in in North Carolina, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the humidity was about 65-70%. You could not do anything. And to the point where you felt sick because you were going from the air-conditioned house into the air-conditioned car, into the air-conditioned mall or university building, wherever you might be visiting. And so that uh, going from the cold to the hot and back and forth was absolutely draining. I don't know how people do it in that part of the world without air conditioning, but you know there are lots of people that don't have it and use it sparingly because electricity is so expensive expensive uh but did we read david's uh text message his hottest temperature well i was curious to see when you said the hottest you've ever experienced i was wondering if it was in the same ballpark david says hottest day i've ever experienced was in tracy california uh which just looking at a map it's sort of in the vicinity of sacramento san francisco and san jose 118 degrees oh with high humidity and in celsius that 47 7.7778 degrees that's uh that's hot and david adds that uh they spent some time in tucson i lived in tucson arizona he says and yes there's a big difference when it's dry heat so let us know at 204-780-6868 how hot is too hot um fortier what you so if it's 35 degrees you're not going for a walk uh probably not if i am it's going to be a quick one i'm not going to spend that much time out outside when it's that hot yeah and then you're you're right you got to stay hydrated that's another i sometimes you forget like oh yeah you got to drink some water because it leaves quicker Mackling McGarry, McNabb back tomorrow. And Jackie sent us a text here, Greg, at 204-780-6868 that I think sums it up uh, on what it is to be a Winnipegger. Jackie says, I complain when it's minus 40, and I complain when it's plus 40, but I hate the high humidity. So you can let us know how hot (laughs) is too hot, because yesterday was a scorcher, and a lot of people were saying, eh, maybe it's just a little too hot. We start this... Hour with the unrest which continues to escalate in Washington and across the United States over the police killing of George Floyd. In the wake of President Trump announcing that he will enact a military crackdown using greater force to enforce curfews. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve 
the problem for them. Global's Jackson Prosco, meanwhile, reminds us of what happened with the president yesterday. He had a conference call today with many state governors. He called them weak for refusing to crack down on these protests. He has been almost singularly focused on the violent aspect of the protests and the people he feels are behind it, which he labels as Antifa, which is a far left-wing uh, 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 ideology. It's not a specific group, but he's also threatened to brand them as domestic terrorists. So uh, it is perhaps not a surprise that he struck this heavy-handed tone today. But you're right, Donna, that question of how he deals with the healing, with the racial divide in this question, that looms over all of this and few will be satisfied by strictly a militarized or heavy police crackdown across the country. Joining us live from Washington, D.C. is Global's Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, an absolutely unreal, if not surreal, hour or so yesterday evening. It really started as police began removing protesters from Lafayette Park across from the White House. How did you see the next hour or so? Uh, well, it played out like anything, uh, like nothing that we've seen over the kind of last four days of these protests uh, in D.C. Uh, we were standing exactly where I am right now, kind of at the fence to Lafayette, the entrance to Lafayette Square, just across the street from the White House. And there were dozens upon dozens of, of riot police, which was a new layer of security that we hadn't seen uh, over the last few days. Uh, and essentially what happened was these riot police uh, jumped the fence. They started rushing towards protesters, splitting uh, the kind of the group into two or three different segments on one side of the park, where on the other side of the park, you had the mounted police along with uh, additional levels of law enforcement rushing towards the other side. Uh, eventually, this led to flashbangs being set off. It led to tear gas and pepper spray being uh, deployed. Uh, and this was well before the uh, the curfew was set to kick in. Uh, the protest at that point was incredibly peaceful. And it was only, you know, within a half hour of that point that we realized that the protesters had been approached and moved out of the way solely so the president could take a photo opportunity. Reggie, are you able to give us maybe a civics lesson of sorts. What is the Insurrection Act? So the Insurrection Act has a lot of legal curves to it, but essentially what it does is allow the president to authorize the military to enforce laws on domestic soil, which normally would not be allowed. The Posse Comitatus Act in the United States prevents any kind of military from uh, dealing with domestic issues when it comes to law enforcement. The president has a couple of tools at his hand, though. He can use the Insurrection Act if a governor or if a state government uh, says that they need uh, additional uh, resources to deal with law enforcement. Notably, this has happened uh, after natural disasters in the country. Uh, the president then also has additional measures where he can then force the military to start taking care of law enforcement issues in the country. But this is very divisive. Uh, it was used in the 1950s and 60s uh, as a way to enhance civil rights, uh, to, uh, to end uh, segregation. Uh, it was used uh, very isolated in the early 1990s uh, in the Rodney King riots, uh, and it hasn't been used since then. But the president calling himself a law and order president and then trying Trying to bring in the military, uh, it makes the United States look like, you know, other countries around the world where we see military law that is in place. But I can tell you last night, uh, military helicopters were flying over Washington so low uh, that you could see the pilots inside and they were actually snapping trees uh, because the helicopters were flying so low over the streets of D.C. All sorts of scenes right across the United States and uh, the, the Posse uh, Comitatus Act. Uh, does that not overrule the Insurrection Act? I'm really, and I apologize for, for dumping this on you, Reggie, just trying to understand. Do not, do the states not have to ask for the president to, to help out in any case, whether it be the National Guard or, or it be the military? 
Well, look, that's why we have the National Guard in the United States, because they act in place of the military. Oftentimes they are the unarmed uh, additional law enforcement that are sent to uh, to assist with a state. But but the executive reach that the president has, uh, you know, it, it's varied and the wording is very loose to be able to allow the president to have the military come in here. The uh, the the Supreme Court has argued that Congress should have control over war powers. But because of this very vague wording in the Insurrection Act, the president does have a leg to stand on if he wants the military to come in. Uh, the problem is it will be met with serious force. And there's already been a number of governors, including Republican governors, who said that the president is simply overreaching right now with the strong arm approach. Reggie, I'm just looking at your Twitter account at Shikini underscore DC. And uh, the account that you provided yesterday is extraordinary. But one of your colleagues, Global's Mike Armstrong, took a look at how peaceful protests and deeper messages of frustration are easily lost amid the mayhem. And one of the tweets you, you mentioned, I think, in the last 24 to 36 hours had to do with a protester who uh, pushed you out of the way and then came back to apologize. Yeah, I mean, look, emotions are high and tensions are high in these situations. You know, this all started a week ago with the death of George Floyd, and it really has brought people together. Uh, but it also has showed that there is generations of anger. And, and at, at that moment was a moment when police were firing tear gas at these peaceful protesters, and it caused a panic run. So people were pushing people out of the way. We got caught up in that melee, uh, and the protester did come back to apologize. Uh, and it does go to show that inside these protests, while there may be some chaos, Chaos, there is still that underlying message that the people are here to, prove, uh, to put a message across to the federal government, uh, and it is not just all anger and violence. Reggie, do we have a sense as, as to how long the president is prepared to wait for states and, and, and uh, governors to ask for his assistance before he, he makes a move himself? I mean, this is the this is the last minute president. Uh, whatever he does, something it's often done off the cuff, uh, and there's no warning for it. Much like that announcement that he made yesterday, we got 15 minutes notice. Uh, we don't know what the president's intentions are when it comes to any kind of military force. We don't even know if the Joint Chiefs would actually uh, go along with what the what the president uh, would say, and if there would be some kind of revolt within the administration and the military. This is a very wait and see approach. We know the president has another photo opportunity at a church later on today. We may get some comments on that, but. Right now, this is a very fragile country, and the president's words and his potential actions are making things much more politically charged. Global's Reggie Giacchini joining us live from Washington, D.C. Reggie, thank you as always, sir. Thank you. Mackling and McGarry McNabb back tomorrow. We're asking you the question this morning, how hot is too hot after it reached 31.4 degrees yesterday? Some say that's too much. Greg, what are we getting at 204-780-6868? Carl, powerful message. First of all, Carl, thank you for your service. The hottest day I ever experienced was in Afghanistan. I was the two with the two PPCLI, and it was the first rotation of Canadian soldiers into the country. We were not allowed to leave the base because the temperature reached 55 degrees Celsius. We had no AC on the overhead camouflage net as shade. We were tasked as the quick reaction force for the day. So we were there sitting in chairs. Everyone was in their underwear with our pants around our ankles ready to go. We were not moving and sweating profusely. Once again, thank you to Carl for that message and for your service, sir. Wow, 55 degrees. That's just a touch hotter than this one. This listener saying... Uh, First-time texter says, used to live in Lake Havasu City, Arizona. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It looks like it's just on the edge of the border of Arizona, where it meets both California and Nevada. And one summer day, it was 128 
degrees Fahrenheit with 25% humidity. 128 Fahrenheit is 53.3 Celsius. And they say, my solution to those hot days, matinee movies in the public library. But here's the thing, and, and they even weighed in on this after I replied. Uh, when you go to a movie on a hot day, you typically go in a T-shirt and shorts and maybe even sandals. But then you sit in the movie theater, and after about two hours, you're frozen solid because the air can... So you have to plan on a hot day to bring a sweater with you. And this person says, I always had a hoodie with me for the movies. It was a late matinee. The sun would go down, and the desert gets cold with no sun. Me personally, as a black woman in Winnipeg, even just advocating for this rally and putting it on, I have been faced with racism in the backlash. I am doing nothing wrong. I am saying nothing wrong. I am being peaceful. But people are still coming at me with racist remarks and comments. So that goes to show you it doesn't matter which way you approach a situation. If people are racist, they're going to be racist. And we need allies to combat that and to stand up for that and tell people when they're wrong. That's 20-year-old Jada Hope, the organizer of a Black Lives Matter rally happening Friday at 6 p.m. outside the legislature. She was on yesterday afternoon at 4.05 with Richard Cluche and Julie Buckingham on the news. And you can listen to that chat in the audio vault at cjob.com. She mentioned the word allies. And that's what we want to talk about this hour. During this time of unrest, how can we be an ally? Well, let's ask our friend, Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman with Clinic Psychology Manitoba and Winnipeg Love. Raymond, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. How are you, sir? Doing well, doing well. So the word ally, what does that mean to you? Um, you know, it's interesting. An ally means somebody who supports. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I do a podcast and I had one of our guests on recently who said, I don't want an ally, I want a co-conspirator. And I think that's ultimately at the heart of all of this, is that you want somebody who sees um, your struggle as their own. And I think the only way we can ever get to the point where we overcome a lot of the racism and the difficulties we're seeing in the world is when we're able to move beyond the us and them, and it's just us. Raymond, uh, if you look at the faces, uh, the colors of the arms and the hands raised in solidarity at many of the protests over the last week, uh, they are not all black hands and nope. arms, and they there are a lot of white and yellow, and uh, every color of the rainbow or every color of skin is represented in those in those protests, and that's got to be heartening for someone of color. It is. It's nice to see that there is that support, uh, because otherwise one can often feel like one is very alone in that struggle. Um, the, the difference, though, in being a really good ally is being able to recognize uh, how bad of a problem this actually is. So people of color will, t- will often hide a lot of their experiences because they're often told that they're being too sensitive, that people didn't mean it that way. And so not only do you face the experience of discrimination, um, but then you face a backlash of being told you're just kind of making a bigger deal out of something than it should be. Uh, and that's the, that's the key point of an ally is somebody who should be able to support that message and is able to take it as seriously as you are. Not everybody has empathy, Raymond. Uh, you know, I know people who le- whose level of empathy borders on dangerous, as far as I'm concerned. But, but maybe some people want to have more empathy. Is there a way to learn it? There is. I, I think one of the key elements that most psychologists who, who do this work talk about is about being able to identify your own privilege and your own bias. 
Um, it's very hard for people, particularly leaders who do work very hard at uh, getting to be where they are. It's hard for them to actually take a step back and go, you know what, I was wrong or I need to learn more about that. Um, we get stuck in our own perspectives. And when we have our own perspectives, we can't see the perspectives of other people. And a lot of the lashback that we're, we're getting, people are getting when they're actually advocating uh, for uh, black lives or people of color will be people who can't take the perspectives outside of their own. The word privilege is a very uh, thorny word for a lot of people uh, because most people feel like they've struggled to get where they are. And that's not what that word means. It means that despite having the same things, there are certain barriers that add extra layers of difficulty for people. And being a person of color is a, a very big uh, layer uh, barrier that people will face. We go back and forth uh, politely as possible with some of our listeners on text messages, Raymond. And, and one one comment I made to someone this morning uh, was this idea of my skin color is a liability. I don't have to worry about that. I, I've never experienced a situation where someone would look at me differently uh, if I come to rent an apartment or apply for a job. Uh, so I don't know what that feels like. Uh, I think what we're asking for here is for people to think about what it would be like if your skin color was a liability and and to at least start there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's, again, taking a perspective outside of your own. Um, you know, it, people can often think that we've come as far as we have and, you know, we've done a really good job of uh, working to counteract racism. And we just frankly haven't. Uh, it's just that people of color or marginalized people get tired of having to fight the fight. Like I face discrimination. Like I, I show up on your show on a regular basis, guys. And, uh, you know, you'll hear me polite. I'll do my job. I will talk about mental health. I talk about uh, inclusion. Uh, what you don't hear is the fact that I face discrimination, at least on a weekly basis. And one needs to be able to choose um, what battles to fight. And you just learn to let certain things go. And if that's the nature of your reality, can you imagine the impact that it has on people's lives? I mean, that, and I and I have a lot of privilege. I have privilege where that that affords me some grace. But there are people who don't even have that. You've talked before with us as well about something called a microaggression, Raymond. What is a microaggression? Well, a microaggression are these small everyday things that marginalize individuals. Now, they're generally well-meaning. Um, things that kind of push people outside of the norm. There's a lot of people who talk about wanting to just be normal and people of color don't ha- not having that. A microaggression is something that, that makes somebody feel invalidated, uh, feels like they're not as worthwhile, feeling like they're just not a part of society. Um, you know, for example, one of the common questions is, where are you from or where are you really from? Uh, suggesting that somehow you're not local. Um, Microaggressions are not, uh, well, these are macroaggressions, you know, not being able to find a common place or an equity in representation in the media, in society. You know, you've heard me often advocate for the celebration of all holidays uh, when leaders and politicians move away from that and say, you know, we've done enough. That is a microaggression, but one that has very far reaching consequences that marginalizes people. We get into what about isms as well in these conversations. I'm looking at a text message right now from one of our listeners. He says, "Well, what about uh, you know black uh, versus black crime and and uh, individuals within the Asian community in China? There's racism within China. There's uh, racism in North America between light-skinned black people and dark-skinned black people, and it's not just white on black hate." 
Um, you know, most certainly it is true that there is a concept of colorism, that even in communities of color, um, lighter is seen as better. But we have to remember that that came from a sense of colonialism where, uh, you know, uh, like let's say the British, for example, who kind of colonized different countries and represented a standard where uh, whiter is better. Uh, I'll give you an example. My own grandfather um, used to be very upset that I had a beard and uh, and I didn't realize why. And it's because, you know, he was in a country that was colonized by the British. And he adopted those values so much so that he denigrated himself to say that anything about himself and that came from his culture was not of great value. And so for him, if I carried a beard, it reflected a value that I was not disciplined, that I was not uh, as functional. And that was a belief that he carried with him for a very long period of time. Um, I carry, I didn't realize this, but I carried with me this impression that, you know, if I had a nice tweed suit, that somehow I had made it in the world, like somehow that was success. And I got one just a couple of years ago, not realizing that I carried that value of a tweed suit being a British suit. Um, mm. I, I carried three generations, there was three generations of carrying that. Um, and so that's what we need to think about when we think about how the impact of this works, even in communities of color. Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman with Clinic Psychology Manitoba and Winnipeg Love joining us live on 680 CJOB. Raymond, pleasure as always, sir. Thank you. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Question of the day at cjob.com. Brought to you by Mr. Furnace. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furnace, 204-832-6243. The question is, we got up to 31.4 degrees in Winnipeg on Monday, and some say that's too hot. What's your perfect warm temperature range? And so far, 53% say 20 to 24 degrees. 32% say 25 to 29 11% say 15 to 19, and only 5% say 30 degrees or more. And the result is very similar on Twitter at 680CJOB, with 48% saying 20 to 24, 40% saying 25 to 29, uh, 7% 30 degrees or more, and only 5% say 15 to 19. For me, Greg, I think I'd put myself in the 25 to 29 category. Where would you fall in that? Oh, I like 30 up. 30, 30 up? up. Oh, yeah, baby. Okay. All right. Yep. Even though yep, the dog yep, doesn't yep. like it. Yeah, that's fine. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Lay down, buddy. <laughs> Less work for you. You can just go about your day without having to take that's the dog right. for a you walk. Got it. So today is Blackout Tuesday on social media. That doesn't mean there are any shortages of opinions today. Far from it. But it was one way. People are showing support for the movements and peaceful demonstrations taking place in the wake of the death of Minneapolis man George Floyd. One former Minneapolis police officer has been charged with murdering Floyd. Yeah, individuals of all races and colors are speaking up and marching by the thousands in hopes of hearing or having their hear, uh, views heard. Susie Erzhevac Parker of Sparker Strategy Group joins us now. And Susie, we want to move the conversation a little bit today and, and, and talk about becoming an ally to people of color. Did, did we set that up okay? Yeah, I was listening to your conversation with Dr. Ribble, Raymond, and um, yeah, he, he echoed exactly what I, what I feel and say, exactly. So just in terms of maybe for those that, that didn't catch our conversation with Dr. Abdurrahman, is just this idea uh, of, of moving uh, maybe from being a spectator to a participant in, in, in race relations. 
That's right. So basically what that means is that you use your privilege. And what that means sometimes in this in this time is that you use the privilege of being either whether it's white or whether it's during pride and being cis to put yourself in between the person or or um, organization trying to put um, oppression upon these people and use that, use yourself as a buffer. So you're not just, you know, putting a black square on your Instagram or whatever, but that means that you're going to show up to a protest and walk with your brothers and sisters in this city, wherever you live, and say, I will do what I can to be a shield between you and the powers that be that are trying to snuff out this protest and your voices. I like to think of myself, uh, well, both Greg and I, we like to think of ourselves as empathetic people, Susie, but we also acknowledge that uh, being white men, we simply cannot understand, we can empathize, but there's no way we can truly understand uh, the difficult situations that people of color have to go through. So if we want to understand better, is there? Is it just as simple as just sitting down with somebody and asking them, like, hey, can you just run this past me? How does it work for you? That's a great question. So there's been a lot of talk this time of people, um, a lot of uh, friends that I have and women of color uh, getting messages and getting texts and saying, like, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And one of the things about allyship or even being an accomplice, as Dr. Raymond talked about as well, is that not asking people of color or women of color to do that work for you. That means that Google exists. And you can find resources on how to be a better ally. There's a great post that's going around that has a ton of information and links that you can read, historical, sociological, economic, and all of these things that you can read up on to find out what this all means, first of all, what the history is, and what that means that you can do personally to help in this effort. Now, that being said, sometimes it's not a big step. Sometimes it's a little step. And that means, for example, you know, you're going to do a panel on diversity, and you find out that everybody on the panel is white and male. That means that you look at that panel and you go, no, I cannot participate in this panel because I need to give that space to somebody who actually knows this experience and can speak to it. That means that you as a white male or a white woman or whatever it might be says that to the organizers and takes yourself out of the equation because that space really should belong to somebody else. That's a big form of allyship right there. You know, and it's something that, that maybe, A, we felt guilty about considering, depending on your point of view and where you come across and, and where you come at that from. But it's it, it's also an awkward conversation we maybe need to have with ourselves is, yeah, should I give up my spot in this, uh, on this panel or whatever other event? Because it's not representative of the population. And in order to make a difference, sometimes there are sacrifices or sacrifices is being made every single day by individuals who don't have the freedoms that that everyone uh, experiences and enjoys. So sometimes that's the right move. Exactly, Greg. And so that's how you move from something like an ally to an accomplice, because now you are putting the powers that be on the spot and saying, why are you asking me to be on this panel when you should be asking somebody who has this lived experience? That means that you are putting yourself in the line of fire, so to speak, to, to and question somebody else's point of view and say, why do you think this is okay? Because this isn't okay. So we need to work together to make that change. I'm going to give up my spot. You're going to look at a more diverse 
group to ask this question of and get their lived experience from. And that's how you can move from an ally to an accomplice and make sure that balance is there, that diversity is there. And that is a task that people of privilege have to take upon themselves every single day. You know, we've heard since, you know, 2014 or 2015, the, the version of the mantle, you know, talking about women in the workplace and it's all men or whatever that, co- that topic might be. That means you must remove yourself from that space and give that to someone with that lived experience. Susie, you mentioned that uh, you talked about not getting somebody to do the work for you and turning to to Google. But what if you want to know personally what someone has experienced if you're trying to be more understanding specifically for that person? Is it bad to just be straight with them and say, you know, can you give me your perspective? So I think that can be problematic in a, in a couple of uh, ways. So number one, it, it depends on your relationship to this person, okay? Is this someone that you know well, that you have hung around with, that you have a, a relationship or even a rapport with? That's one thing, okay? For somebody to sit down and basically you're asking them to share their trauma with you, okay? That is a very difficult thing for somebody to do, for somebody who has lived that, and not only that one time, but every time they tell that story, that's trauma. That's a lot of work for that person, emotionally, psychologically. Does that mean also that it is a bad thing? It's not necessarily a bad thing, but we have to be prepared that people will say, no, I don't want to share that story with you, and it's not something I want to relive, but please know that I have lived it, and here are some resources you can use. I don't need to be, you don't need to hear my trauma and my pain to gain empathy from my experience and say, oh, well, if it happened to someone I know, then maybe I need to be more aware of this. It is happening to people you know, whether they admit it or not. And that's something that we need to basically peel back from our eyes. This is happening to every person of color that you know, whether or not they have shared it with you. And as Dr. Raymond said, you know, we can remember from being young children. I will never forget my mother crying when I, when I asked her what that word meant at seven years old in a public school, that, that memory is, is emblazoned on my brain and, and on my heart. Because if my child came home and asked me that, I would shatter into pieces. So we need to do better. And that means doing the hard work. That means having awkward conversations. That means putting our hearts on the line and taking, taking one for other people who have not had that privilege. Susie Parker. Susie. Go ahead, Greg. Brett, uh, can we go just a little bit long here? 60 just, seconds. Uh, with, okay, Susie, uh, just got a text here. I was listening to your last guest, Dr. Alba Raymond, who's talking about how one microaggression would be asking someone of color where they're from. Is this always a negative or inappropriate question to ask? The text message is much lengthier. I think the point of this text message is this person is just interested in, in who somebody is and learning a little bit more about them. Yeah. So that's a great question because on the surface, it seems like a very small talk kind of question, right? And I think what we need to understand with these microaggressions is it's always about intent. Now, a person of color has had these experiences a number of times. So when the person asks you, you know, like, oh, like if you're at a conference, oh, like, where are you from? Okay, that's one thing. I answer Winnipeg. But then if they continue and ask that question again with a little bit of an edge to it, I know what that means. That means that you don't think I belong here. That means that you think... I am from some foreign place and I learned English as a second language and you don't think I'm speaking it well enough or whatever that might mean. That's when it becomes the microaggression because it's no longer small talk. You're digging for a different reason than just making small talk conversation. Susie Urjvec Parker of Sparker Strategy Group joining us live on 680 CJOB on how to be an ally. Susie, thank you so much for the time as always. Very much appreciated. Thanks so much.
But as more businesses continue to reopen in phase two of Manitoba's economic relaunch, many businesses are still waiting, still waiting for their green light. We got an email from the co-founder of Winnipeg's biggest escape rooms, The Real Escape, which reads as follows. I want to bring attention to the situation that is being overlooked in the reopening of the Manitoba economy. Currently, all indoor entertainment is being grouped as a whole. For instance, a small virtual reality company that takes private bookings only cannot open during phase one and two of the reopening plan. An escape room that takes a private family or private groups and puts them in a large private room by themselves is not allowed to open, yet restaurants, bars, bowling alleys are allowed. Yeah, to find out more on this, let's speak with the man who brought it to our attention, Adam Schmidt. He's the co-founder and president of The Real Escape and Activate Games. Adam, great to meet with you again. How's it going, guys? That's doing, it's going okay. It's uh, lots to talk about, but this is uh, something that uh, we think needs to be heard. And so just tell us, what's the difficulty here from, from your perspective? Brett outlined it, you know, with your own words that you wrote to us yesterday, but uh, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so basically, um, you know, a lot of uh, non-essential social type businesses have opened, Um and uh, we're unfortunately not allowed because uh, we are assuming we're going to be in phase uh, three. Um, the the issue is that we're sort of grouped in with large uh, entertainment conglomerates like a casino, um, you know, a bingo hall, something that that has a lot of people all in one space. But obviously, like a, you know, the email said, you know, we're not that. We're we're taking a private family private common group we're putting them in a private room by themselves and so we have the ability to social distance and unfortunately you know we have uh because we have the ability it's just you know it's a little depressing because um you know we have fifty thousand dollars in in expenses that go out every single month and and uh you know as as waves you know potentially keep coming through the province we're going to be the first to close and the last to open if we're considered the same as a casino. Aren't escape rooms, and forgive me, Adam, when I say this, I'm ashamed to admit it, I have not yet been to the real escape. I've only done two escape rooms in my life, and uh, I, I want to go to the real escape because I hear it is legendary. People talk about uh, the, you've got a, like a haunted house kind of sca- escape room that apparently is just uh, petrifying, so that sounds super fun. But uh, the escape rooms I have visited are at times kind of cramped, so is is how would that come into, into play here in terms of the social distancing? Um, some are. Ours generally are not. Ours are, are quite large. Um, but I, I guess the assumption would be that if a, you know, private group is going into a restaurant, you're, you're, you're a family unit, you're a common unit that you interact with on a regular occasion. We're not sort of saying that. It, you know, the assumption is that Groups of people uh, shouldn't come from uh, different households if, you know, if you haven't interacted yet. Um, but if you are, it's a great way for a family unit to go into, uh, a, you know, a room together. It's a large room and, and interact. It's, uh, there's, there's literally no interaction with our, uh, with our staff either. We're, we're going to be doing our briefings, you know, um, from a distance. And then you're going to go in that room for a whole hour. Then we're going to clean it. Uh, thoroughly and then the next group will go in but uh, but uh, they yeah some are cramped ours ours generally are not but uh, 
But even if they are cramped, again, it's sort of like just being at home. <laughs> Adam, it sounds as though you, you've thought uh, about uh, all the different rules and, and regulations and suggestions that are in place and thought about how those apply to your business and, and your operating model. And, and it also sounds as though you're, you're prepared to, to make whatever adjustments are necessary. Have you had the opportunity to lay this out with anyone either from public health or the government? Well, we've tried to interact with the, the government, and uh, you know, I, I obviously they're busy, and you know, I don't, I don't blame them at all. I think they're doing a fantastic job. So, number one for us is obviously the safety of our, our staff, our customers, and, and the province. And and so, if we if we know we have the ability to do something, we're just trying to bring it to their attention because, you know, I have eighty staff that are laid off, and uh, not that we're gonna bring everybody back right away because we're going to obviously have, you know, a lower capacity, but um, it's been something that we're trying to bring attention to the government um, that if, if there are businesses out there, small businesses that do private bookings, um, why can a restaurant or a bar open up and not us, you know? Um, But we're sort of receiving generic responses that you're in phase three, but we're kind of wondering why are we in phase three? How many escape rooms are there, by the way, in Winnipeg? Uh, I think there's about 10. Yeah, 10. And, you know, and some of them might not be able to make it through this. And, and, and this extra, you know, 21 days that we have to wait or another month, it, it might be the kicker for them because, you know, we're talking huge amounts of rent and, and people have loans and, and they got families and if they can do it. They should be able to open. And I just wish we had a, a way to actually talk to someone. Uh, I get that they're busy, though. Again, I'm not blaming them. You know. Well, maybe we can uh, spark a conversation, open the ears of somebody over on Broadway that uh, might be listening this morning, that might be willing to speak to you. The economic impact of what you're doing here is huge because, as we know from our previous conversations with you, it's not just your location. I'm talking about Activate Games now that that uh, is in play here. Obviously, you, you have some other things, some bigger plans on the agenda that you're enacting right now. But one thing that... Uh, uh, I would have to ask you, I know from my time at Activate Games, I'm touching everything and as fast as I can. So maybe just give me an idea of how you can keep those surfaces clean uh, w- without really knowing who's touched what and, and, and for how long. Yeah, so with Activate Games right now, we're, we're planning on, on uh, when we open, we're just going to have minimal groups and then we'll, we'll sort of keep them in uh, you know a set of certain amount of rooms and then we'll go and clean it and then we'll, we'll do a swap. So as you probably know, everybody just kind of comes in and can do any room that they want. Uh, we're, uh, we're going to, uh, avoid that. So, um, we, we have a different model for activate games, um, that, you know, and, and the other thing is to like, even if, you know, if the government allowed one group at activate games, like that would be great for us. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like only one family unit in the whole facility at, at any given time. Like that would be fantastic. We could open today and it would be completely safe. They'd have 14,000 square feet to, to be on their own. Um, just something, right? Because we have zero revenue right now. We have the ability to, to, to make adjustments. It's just that I don't even know who to talk to about it. Well, here's hoping... It's not you- like a... 
Sorry, Brett, I just wanted to say it's not like a restaurant that we've seen so many places adjust their business model to curbside delivery or a grocery store or 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 to have home delivery. There, there really is no pivot for you at this point. No. No, no, there's nothing we can do, obviously, but uh, we can just wait and hope, hopefully things get better. I mean, obviously, our province is doing an amazing job, and I'm, I'm so, we're so lucky to be in this province as opposed to, you know, Ontario or Quebec and, and have the ability to, to open up soon and, and, uh, and uh, make those safe adjustments to make sure that everybody is safe. So, Adam Schmidt is the co-founder and president of The Real Escape and Activate Games. And indeed, hopefully, as you mentioned, you'll be included in phase three because uh, I recently, or last year, I visited Activate Games and it blew my mind. It blew all, like everyone who was there was just like a little kid running around. It was so, so much fun. And uh, escape rooms are such a great, like, they're, they're not just fun, but they're, they're a really good team building exercise, aren't they, Adam? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's great for schools, um, great for uh, corporate events. We we have nine rooms at our facility, so we can, you know, do a large, you know, team building company can come in there. They can, everybody can uh, race against the clock and try to get out, and then everybody will have lots to talk about after. It's It's a lot of fun. All right, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate this, and hopefully Phase 3 will include you guys so we can head out there and come see you. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Adam Schmidt is the co-founder and president of The Real Escape and Activate Games. The Real Escape, by the way, not to be confused with The Pure Escape. Yesterday, we spoke with Rosario Cesario from The Pure Escape, Massage Therapy and Spa. And I forgot to mention that they do now... or. Are, they are now going to be able to offer some of their spa uh, treatments. He said they're going to start up with uh, manicures and pedicures tomorrow and just see how it goes from there before they start offering more stuff at the Pure Escape. But today we're talking about the real escape and activate games. I recently spotted on social media that the Winnipeg Blue Bombers have partnered with a local loungewear and apparel company that we've spoken to before to craft a sweet new pullover jacket. Zawike is the company. Ogo Okumaboa is the co-founder, and he joins us now live on The Start. Ogo, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, fellas. How are you guys doing? Doing great, man. Doing great. Thank Glad to talk to you today. Uh, how'd this partnership come about with the Bombers? Well, um, initially, I guess um, we spoke to uh, the lovely Rianne Marcoux, and um, she's the marketing director there at uh, the Bombers, and um, we had kind of pitched a little thing that uh, we would like to do with them, and um, it ended up being that uh, they liked some of the apparel that we that we currently made for our own store, and you know the rest was history. I mean, we there was a lot more coming out, but unfortunately, with COVID and everything that's hit. I uh, think it's kind of been pulled back a little bit, but uh, it's been pretty awesome, and we're, we're excited to work with them. Ogo, I haven't seen the half zip in person yet. <laughs> no, just kidding. I'd love to see it, uh, but uh, online it looks fantastic. It's uh, you know, it's really neat to get a different perspective. I think in terms of uh, this merchandise and this apparel, because so many people love to wear the Blue Bomber logo. They love to wear the Jets logo. They love to rep where they're from, but it's not always in the style necessarily that everybody likes. So this gives an opportunity for the teams in my mind to sort of step out of that comfort zone and that traditional sports apparel designer and partner with somebody with yourself and gets more in the lifestyle apparel stuff. 
You bet. Yeah, it, it's been pretty awesome. They they gave us pretty uh, pretty good free reign with uh, with designing and and kind of going. And uh, as, as you guys know, our our uh, our company likes clean finishes and clean design. And I think we kind of were able to kind of hit the nail on the head with uh, with the bomber jacket. And we've gotten pretty good rave reviews from friends and other people asking me, uh, uh, "Do you guys have any of those over?" Uh, over here uh, our way. So we've been sitting them down in that bomber store, but it's been pretty awesome to work with them. So the, it was 31 degrees in Winnipeg yesterday. The last thing yes. some of us might be thinking about is buying a jacket. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, you know, is it is it like rainproof? How warm is the jacket? Like, give, so give us some details. It's a very, it's a very light, it's a light jacket. It's great for, it's probably a little bit better for, you know, uh, walks in the evening. Tomorrow it wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be the great. Uh, it is water repellent. I wouldn't say it's proof, um, waterproof, but we find, you know, if it's you're out early morning kind of walking or even if some guys like to wear it as, a, as a, like a little jogging piece, um, we, we've found that it's kind of just a nice lightweight jacket, uh, kind of cool on, on, you know, mid-temperature days, nothing, nothing too crazy. Ogo, i uh, got to ask you about uh, some of the stuff that you're doing uh, with regard to your Black History collection. Uh, you've got a new initiative as of this morning, and you're uh, kind enough to share it with us today. You bet. Um, well, so uh, as you, we, we were on uh, the show a while ago, and we were talking about the Beat History campaign, and uh, in light of all the kind of things that are currently happening in our, in our climate right now, uh, we thought it was kind of important to kind of bring back um, our line with a couple of unique kind of pieces, not necessarily pieces, just t-shirts that allow individuals to express kind of some of their frustrations, kind of some of the things that they're looking for. Uh, and we'd like to kind of, we're going to be looking to team up with, uh, with a charity either locally, uh, we're, we're yet to find one. So if anyone here is listening and they, uh, have some requests, they can definitely, uh, send it to us via Instagram at, at VK. Uh, we're trying to kind of put something there, but we feel that, you know, with, with the social justice and the climate that we're currently kind of facing, I think it's important for people to kind of speak out and support and realize that, yeah, there is a change that is needed, uh, a change in the way that we view things, a change uh, whether it affects you or not. Um, sometimes you have to imagine if that was your family member or if that was uh, someone that uh, looked like you. And that was currently happening all the time. And it was you all the time that you had to deal with that type of nonsense uh, that you probably would want to see someone at least stand up for you. So I think it's something that we've decided to put out and um, we've been seeing a lot of good traction and people are pretty excited about being able to speak a little bit on their T-shirt. When we've been talking this morning about how to be an ally, as I look at these T-shirts at Zuike.com, that's spelled Z-U-E-I-K-E.com, uh, one of the shirts, uh, you, it looks like you can get it, uh, there's a, a black shirt, and then there's also a women's T-shirt, and it says, I can't breathe again. Uh, so if, you know, if somebody wants to do their part somehow, uh, purchasing one of these T-shirts, would you suggest is a way where you can be an ally? You definitely can, and, 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 and you know, part of the proceeds will be going to, um, to, a, to a social justice cause, Um so we are, we're definitely not just taking it just to, to you know to have uh, shirts up online, but we're also going to be doing it so that we're giving back to to a cause that uh, that people that need help that need someone to stand up for them and, and help with the funding of that. So um, it's definitely something that I think you know a lot of people have cried and and have, have, have been angered and, and a lot of different ways, and this is just a different way 
to kind of, you know, peacefully protest and kind of express your feelings um, as kind of this chaotic kind of period occurs. Ogo, I know when you you came to visit us during uh, Black History Month, and you were so kind, uh, you and Brian, to bring us Black History Month T-shirts, and and uh, just by the way, the fabric is incredible. I've washed mine uh, several times already; it looks brand new still. But Brett Great. and I both asked you the question: you know, is it is it okay for a couple of white guys to wear this T-shirt? And you sort of looked at us and you said, "Of course it is." <laughs> and you know, your answer was perfect, but. You know, uh, you know, four months later, uh, maybe just uh, why? Why is it okay for Brett and I to walk around with, uh, you know, uh, a, a red and green and, and yellow yeah. um, <laughs> fist in the air celebrating Black yeah. History? It's not. Um, I, I think, especially in this in this case, and I think the most important people have. I think part of this is that people have to realize that because it doesn't affect you, doesn't mean it doesn't affect you. Like I mean, I, I the the idea to me is I've had a lot of white people ask me, oh, well, is it right for me to wear this? And I, I always say, sometimes you have to, in this case, sometimes remove the color and say, you know, the way that uh, Greg Floyd was treated, is that a humane way that you'd like to see someone that looks like you? Or if that was your family member or someone that, um, that you know uh, treated that way and killed kind of just like, 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 it didn't matter. Do you would you stand up for it? And and that's the same way the voice that you would scream if that was a family member or a person that you knew and loved or just knew, uh, and you knew it was happening over and over. That's where I think it's important. I think that's why um, whether you're white, Chinese, black, whatever, you need to. It's it's a hum, it's a humanitarian issue. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. something that it's not it's not something that I'm asking you just because you're white that you should wear. I think it's important that. Uh, white people wear it because I think it doesn't affect them as much. And sometimes it's, it's really easy to turn a blind eye when it doesn't happen to you. You know, I can always, you can always say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's their problem, not mine. But really, eventually, and, and you're starting to see that it's becoming everyone's problem. It's becoming a, an issue that can cause something more than, you know, it's as simple as riots don't happen if all they do is arrest the guy. You know, they arrest the cop that murdered the man and, and some of the things just end, you know, and, and it's very it's very simple. And I think that what people are looking for is justice and you're looking for allies. And what happens is if, if someone, you know, thinks, oh, this is just OK, that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, that's when you're going to start to find a lot more social division, a lot more, you know, uh, worrisome kind of uh, activity and war. And, and you're definitely not going to have a, a peaceful peaceful demonstration. So that's, that's, you know, in the long and short of it, that's why I think it's very important for not only black people to be wearing it. I think it's important for, for white Chinese, all, all races, because, you know, as easy as it's to say, it could be them. It could very well be them. The website, once again, is zuike.com, and right there front and center is the updated Black History Month collection. Uh, before we let you go, do you have anything else coming up with the Bombers? Uh, there will be another piece kind of being released uh, closer to the end or beginning of July. We will be looking at it. There's going to be a really slick backpack coming out for them. And uh, we actually have some leggings coming out with Valor FC, too. So, I mean, uh, definitely look for it. They'll be showing up at uh, the Bomber store and uh, very shortly. And we're really excited about that uh, partnership and, and working with them. And they've been awesome and, and supporting a, a local company like us. 
Ogo Okamabua, co-founder of Zuike, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Ogo, thank you for this. Always a pleasure, bud. Thank you, guys. Appreciate the time, and I thank for your support, and uh, keep up the good work. All Have a right. great one. And if you want to see the jacket, we have linked a picture of it from their social media to our Instagram story. If you follow us on Instagram at 680CJOB, you'll get a look at it. And Greg, you made a great point about how it's it's a different look for the sports apparel. Because sometimes I walk into these stores and it's it's all the same kind of stuff. You know, most of the jackets are zip up and a lot of it looks, I don't want to say stodgy, but it's just nice to see something that looks a little bit cooler. It's got this half zip down, uh, you know, sort of nice pullover look. It just looks, it looks cooler to be quite frank than a lot of the stuff that you can get for sportswear. Yeah, some of the designers, they just kind of get stuck in a certain kind of mode. And so, you know, if you're with one manufacturer and all your stuff comes from one source, it, it does get to look a little bit uh, like replicates. Well, this is the, the golf shirt version of that jacket or the jacket version of that T-shirt. And, you know, uh, fashion is so individual now. As much as we like to be a part of the team, I think it's so cool when when uh, these uh, different uh, style makers get involved with the sports teams and uh, bring the apparel to a whole other level. I can really dig it. I think I got to get my hands on one of those uh, because I remember going to the Banjo Bowl last year and thinking, oh, I think I needed a jacket. So this is the jacket that I would love to wear. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.